morning, everybody. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting today, it's great to have you. I'd love to meet you afterwards. We have been in a long series on the gospel according to Mark, and uh, it's been through this rainy season. Hopefully, we're all recovering from the sunshine yesterday. Did, did you know that since October 1st, so about six months, we've had 150 days of measurable rain? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I'm, I'm ready for some sun. I, I enjoyed yesterday. Um, so it's good to be with you. Uh, it's good to be in this season. I'm glad for springtime. And today, we come to this place in Mark's gospel, which is a doubling down of a miracle that Jesus has already done. At first glance, we almost wonder if this is just another account of the same miracle. We're going to watch Jesus do another lunchtime miracle, and he's going to show great compassion, and that raises the question that I want to sort of think about today with you as we look at this passage. We might say that if God Almighty shows compassion toward me, I would, I would know, I would see it, I would be able to understand it if he were to do that. And then we might say, God, please, would you help me? Would you show me some compassion? Would you show me something? Reveal yourself in some way. Give me something that I can hang my hat on. Show me some compassion. I'm suffering deeply or something like that. You might be peering across the landscape of your life and you can see what's happening, what's going on. You look at it through a certain lens and you say, man, where is God in all of this? I'm looking for something that tells me God actually cares, that he has compassion on me. And the question is, what if you're looking in the wrong spot? What if you're looking for the wrong thing? What if you're actually looking in the wrong way? What if there's an answer right before you and it feels like there's not? I liken this to an experience that I had uh, up in Alaska. So I have a good friend named Wes. He lives on the Kenai Peninsula and I've gone up there to fish halibut with him and uh, explore all around. And so I was up there a couple years ago and we're hanging out one afternoon and he says, you wanna go look for spirit stones? I said, what in the, what kind of hippy-dippy nonsense is that? He says, no, this is a real thing. And the next thing you know, we've got two four-wheelers and a couple of Remington 870 12 gauges in case we ran into bears. This is a different kind of coastline than Oregon, okay? You got to take guns with you. And so we're, we're going up this coastline, and he's teaching me how to look for these stones. Uh, Colleen, could you show the picture? This is what they look like. There's spirit stones. Now, that's, they're made of the Alaskan sort of silt, and in, it, in, it, in certain eddies or little pools of water, the silt will settle out almost, and it concretizes into these stones. And you can see they, they come in all different shapes and sizes, and they're the color of the mud because they're made of the mud, and they're sitting in the mud. So it's kind of tricky to find. That's good on the picture. So away we go, and we're looking for these stones on the coastline with our waders on. It's a very muddy beach, and he's trying to teach me how to look for them. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a pretty good rock finder. 
I used to look for agates all the time in Minnesota. There's a way of finding agates, and I thought, you know, this will transfer. And it didn't. It was exceedingly difficult to find these stones. We went miles and miles, hours and hours, looking for these things. I'd say that learning to see the compassion of Jesus is going to require something different. We might, we might have an impression of how to recognize the work of God. And then we look for that, and we don't see it, and we say, well, well where is he, and what's he doing? So I'd like to start right away with the story. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read this in two segments. And this first segment is going to be a very familiar to Mark chapter 6, where Jesus fed a huge crowd as well in about the same spot. Okay? So let's start reading this together. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Mark writes, In those days... There was another large crowd with nothing to eat. <laughs> I like the way that he says that. It's like a, another large crowd. It's like all these crowds forming with nothing to eat. Well, here they are. There's another large crowd, and they don't have anything to eat. And so Jesus calls his disciples together, and he looks at them, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have already been with me here for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them home hungry, they're going to faint away. And some of them have come from afar. Some of them have traveled a very big distance to be here. I can't just leave them hungry. Well, his disciples answered to him, I think in a way that I would, we probably all would. Where in the world is somebody going to get enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? How is that? <laughs> come on, how is that possible? And he asked them a profound question. He said, how many loaves do you have? Well, seven. We have seven, they replied. And then Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And after he took the seven loaves and he gave thanks, he broke them. And he began giving them to the disciples. He takes the seven loaves, he gives thanks for them, breaks them, and once again, like he did before, gives them to the disciples, and he says, serve these. So they serve the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and then after giving thanks for these, he told them to serve these as well. And everybody ate and was satisfied, and they picked up the broken pieces that were left over, and they had seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 who ate it. And here in Mark's story, he just says 4,000 people. If you remember in the previous one, he said 5,000 men. It was a much larger crowd then, so this is a smaller crowd. There were about 4,000 who ate, and it was in the first, or then he dismissed them. And immediately, he got into a boat with his disciples, and they went into the district of Dalmanutha. We don't know for sure where Dalmanutha is. Um, it, it's probably Magdala, which is on the northern side of Galilee. So he's up in this same region. If you remember the Decapolis, the, the area of the ten cities, 
Jesus has been there before. There was a demoniac, a guy uh, possessed by demons. And Jesus had cast the demons out of him. And the guy said, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, no. You go back to your home and tell him what I've done. And he does. And it's, it's not unlikely for me to think that the impact is part of what draws this huge crowd. Then Jesus leaves and he comes back to the same spot where he had previously healed that one guy. And now there's this huge crowd that's coming to him. So the word of Jesus is spreading, and they're coming to hang out with him in this spot on the northeast side of Galilee somewhere, okay? Now, before we get into the story, I want to just make one point about that little segment where he, he asked them how many loaves that they have. I think it's really important for us as a congregation here at CB. When we hear the call of Jesus... We oftentimes see the practical difficulties in making that come to pass. And we have a lot of practical difficulties here in East Portland related to ministering the gospel to children, to youth, to young adults, to all of us, to be disciplers so that we're all being discipled, so that all of our kids are being ministered to. So all of that stuff is happening and it's just overwhelming sometimes. And we, like the disciples, I think, frequently say, well, gosh, who's going to do that? And I think Jesus very powerfully responds to us, what do you have to offer? We've grown very accustomed in our world today to hiring people to do things, but the church life is about being in together. So I like that example here where the disciples have that same thought that you or I would have, and they say, this is too big, this is too much. How could that possibly happen? Jesus seems to say two things in those scenarios always. I'm with you, that's the biggest one, and then what do you have to offer? And then he has a profound way of making what seems very small actually work. So stick that in the back of your head. It's not the main point of this text, but I think it's really important. Let's shift gears. Let's think about these two lunchtime miracles, and as we do, I think that we will be challenged to reconsider the ways that we see Jesus' compassion, the way that we see him. At the end, there's going to be an example here from the Pharisees, and I think we can, we can contrast. We can look at how they respond, and we can learn from them as well. Here's what I think we're going to learn. Requiring things from Jesus is very different than being with Jesus. And the outcome, the result in your life is, is they couldn't be further from one another. If you're coming to Jesus requiring things from him versus coming to Jesus to be with him, okay? This reads a lot like the previous lunchtime miracle story, and so we have to ask, are they actually different? I think that answer is actually pretty simple. If you've been around uh, the Bible world for any amount of time, you know that we love to debate these kinds of things. Is this actually technically a different miracle, or is it just the same one recorded in a different way? If you roll just a few verses further in Mark chapter 8 to verses 19 and 20, this is Jesus looking back on the miracles, kind of recalling uh, his disciples' attention to them. And you read, he says, did you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? And the, and the disciples, they say, well, we picked up 12. 
And then he says, well, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? And they said, well, we, we, we picked up seven. Right there, and we will come to that passage in two weeks, but right there, we can see Jesus clearly sees that there were two separate accounts, two separate miracles with different results. So we can definitely see this as two different ones, and then that compels us to say, okay, why does Jesus do the same miracle twice with two different crowds? That's an interesting question. Why would he do it twice? Mostly in the same way, but they're not the same. Perhaps you noticed some differences already. I think there's five I want to look at. And I think we can learn about what Mark is trying to do with this text by looking at the differences in these two feeding miracles. So here they are. In the first one, I spent a lot of time trying to show how Jesus was being presented as the new Moses. He's out in a desolate place. He organizes the people in groups of tens and fifties and hundreds, and just like Moses organized the people. He creates bread out of thin air, not unlike manna from heaven. He seems to be, uh, they, we have lots of indication that, that Mark is showing us this new Moses figure. But in today's story, we didn't see any of that. In the first one, the compassion that Jesus has, there's compassion in both of them, but in the first story, he comes out of the boat and he says, man, these people are like sheep wandering around without a shepherd. And so he had compassion on them and his, his next step was to teach them. So there was a great compassion for them because of what they didn't know, because they were sort of wandering aimlessly without a shepherd. And Jesus wanted to teach them. Here, the compassion of Jesus is focused almost primarily on the physical hunger. He says, man, these guys are getting hungry. i got to help them. We see two different angles of Jesus' compassion. The third one is that we know both of the stories do take place in this desolated region. Don't think desert. There's still lots of greenery there, but it's, it's out in the countryside, and there's nothing big going around nearby. So they're out in a desolate place. In the first one... Uh, they gathered from the neighboring regions here, Mark stresses that they have come from far off, from far away. Uh, anybody tuned into Old Testament kinds of talking hears that from far off language and hears the word Gentile close behind. That's the way that the Old Testament often refers to Gentile nations, those who were far off coming in, that kind of thing. And I don't necessarily want to talk too much about the numbers. Uh, they're interesting. But I would make, make this point. You probably noticed the differences already. In the first one, there's 12 baskets that are left over. Here, there's only seven. Uh, Gentiles in the Old Testament are often talked about with the word seven or 70. Uh, Genesis 9, uh, when, when Noah makes a covenant, there's seven commandments. In Genesis 10, it talks about the 70 Gentile nations. But when we see the number 12, we hear a lot more Jewishness in that word. 12 tribes, etc., etc. So in the first one, there seems to be this focus on Jewishness. And in this one, there seems to be a focus on Gentiles. The fifth difference that I would notice is the way Mark talks about the baskets. In the first one, 
He used the word for baskets. That refers to kind of a tote bag size basket. Very common in the Jewish community. They'd use that for carrying lunch around. And this one, the word he uses for baskets means a very big basket, probably made of rope or a mat rolled up. It's the same word in Acts chapter 9, where Paul literally gets into a basket and they lower him out of a roof. Much more common at the wider swaths of humanity, whereas the one used in the first feeding miracle, the word that Mark uses, is very specific to a Jewish community and it's smaller. Okay. So there's, and there's more. Let's just look at those and say, yeah, there's some big differences between these two. So that's cool. We can pass a quiz, maybe. We understand factoids. What, why does that matter? What, why, what is Mark trying to draw our attention to? Well, I think that one of the biggest things here is he's drawing our attention to who receives compassion from this God. Who receives compassion? We see Jesus in the first one being talked about in the third person, and his compassion is poured out on a group that is predominantly, if not entirely, Jewish. We know that from, uh, especially in John, where they talk about that same miracle, and the people wanted to make Jesus their king. We have this sense that it was almost a Jewish uprising about to begin, and Jesus wants to bail out of that. So in the first sense, it's, it's about the Jewish community, but in this scene, Jesus is speaking in the first person. The disciples sort of fade into the backdrop. If you notice, they're not really big in this scene. And I think Mark is subtly but powerfully trying to say Jesus is actively, intentionally pursuing the Gentile people. Now, what does Mark accomplish by writing this way? How is that helpful? He's given us, I think, a a powerful picture to declare Jesus' compassion directly, directly to this crowd. And if Mark is writing to a Gentile audience in Rome in the first century, and we think he is, you can imagine how that compassion story to this crowd extends to those believers in Rome the Gentiles in Rome, and they would say, wow, this is a God who shows compassion on people like us. That's different, that's unexpected, that's really good. And then by long extension, I think we can ratchet that right into 21st century Portland and say that we can look at this story. Mark has shown us in the way he has set this story up and also grouped it with other stories about Jesus breaking the rules to take his compassion to people who aren't deserving of it. And he could say, wow, he is actually showing us compassion as well. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is a God who shows compassion not only to the Jewish community, but also to the Gentile community of whom most of us are a part of. And he's showing us who receives it. It's not just an elite group who claims to a particular kind of righteousness. We've seen him show compassion to idolaters, to criminals, to the unclean. He has broken the mold 
He is taking his compassion to places that many would say he really ought not be. And I'd remind us that the bread that Jesus broke for these folks way back then is the same bread that he breaks for us that we're still breaking every day. I think that's awesome. And I think it also creates problems for us, just like it did back then. It creates problems particularly for people who come to Jesus with certain requirements and certain demands. Some require Jesus to fit into what they are willing to call divine. Okay? We have a picture of what is divine, what it should be, what it should do, what it should look like. If you're going to call it divine, it's going to be like this. They have a few criteria for what a divine being must obviously be like. And they look at Jesus' behavior and his speech. They look at his morals, his lifestyle, and they just simply say, there's no way. There is no way that a guy who talks like this and acts like this and has this kind of lifestyle and does these kinds of things, there's no way that he could be of God. He doesn't fit the correct criteria. Some require other human beings to fit into what they are willing to call worthy. They know God. They know what and whom God loves and does not love, and they know that nobody associated with the one true God, nobody associated with the one true God is going to be showing compassion on the nasty, unclean people. Jesus is showing compassion to these people. There's no way that if he is truly associated with God, he would be doing that. Those people just aren't good enough. They're just too dirty. What group does Mark point to as a good example of this kind of posture before Jesus? This posture that says we've got God dialed in. We know who should be receiving compassion and who shouldn't be. Mark points us to the group of Pharisees. He says, pay attention to some of the stuff these guys do. That's a great example of this kind of attitude. So look at the way that they respond to Jesus with me. It's the next, chat, the next verses from where we left off. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. This is, this is right following this amazing lunchtime miracle. And here come the Pharisees, verse 11. Then the Pharisees came and they began to argue with Jesus, asking for a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply got to feel Jesus as best you can right there. I think I would, I would just get mad at him. You know, like, get grief, you guys. Leave me alone. Jesus sighs deeply. He sighs deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation look for a sign? I tell you the truth that no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them. And he got back into the boat, and he went to the other side. When you read generation there, think people group. Uh, I, th I think it's probably more specifically to this group of people rather than everybody in this age range, okay? And, and he's, he's saying, why do these people 
demand a sign from me. And the way he responds to them is profound. I, I think his deep sign of the spirit tends toward a, us seeing a brokenheartedness. He sees their, their argument and their question, and, he, and his heart is broken. That suggests to me that they're not coming with an honest inquiry, okay? When somebody is just coming with a genuine question, that's different. Maybe it's not unlike Jesus before Pilate, when Pilate is once again saying, why don't you prove yourself? You've got a shot here, and Jesus just simply quiets down. He knows Pilate's not actually asking the question. He's using a question to say something. Isn't it interesting that the people who come to Jesus seeking and looking and truly asking, wanting to hear him speak for himself, wanting to see who he is on his own terms, they end up with Jesus, and I think they're able to see his compassion for real, kind of along the lines of seek and you will find. But the people who come to Jesus arguing, requiring, and demanding from him remain blind to his compassion. Demand, and you stay blind. Seek, and you will find. Demand, and you stay blind. I could not find uh, those spirit stones in Alaska. <laughs> all day. It was cold, too. All day long. Mud all over me. We looked for hours and miles up and down this coastline. In Minnesota, where I lived, it was a place where the glaciers from Canada had come down over northern Superior, Lake Superior, and then melted right where I lived. So I could go into gravel pits and find agates. And the way you found them was looking in the midst of grayish, brownish rocks for something bright and, sh and colorful. You're looking for a certain hue of red, kind of a maroon, or a certain texture on the rock. That's how you go out and find these valuable stones. But looking for the spirit stones, I had to learn from a native Alaskan on how to do that. And you're not looking for a variation in color. It's all the same gray. You had to look for a certain kind of pool of water where the water would sort of fold in on itself and be always making uh, the sediment settle. And it had to be kind of a certain depth. And the tides would come in and out, but when you were looking, you're looking for the way that it was. So, so you're being taught to look for a stone by really being able to look for its surroundings, and it was totally different. I searched for hours, I never found one. I think that the people in Jesus' Jewish world had a vision of glory and a vision of what divine power would look like, and they figured that when we come across it, we will be able to see it easily. And I hear Jesus saying, you guys have seen this happen over and over, and yet you still don't understand. The Pharisees know what he's been doing. They've heard about it. Right in the very beginning, Jesus did a great sign in front of Pharisees in a synagogue, which was to cast a demon out. What was the Pharisees' response? They were pretty hostile. They were looking for something else. Now, the whole tendency of the age back then when you were looking for a sign was to look for something pretty fantastic, to look for God in the abnormal, 
to look for God in what was totally abnormal. This is how we know to find him. Folks believed that when the Messiah would come, they were, they were going to see all kinds of crazy, cool, awesome sort of displays of power. Whenever a false Messiah would rise up, he would make claims to this kind of power. So Josephus is a, a Jewish historian, and he talks about some of these guys. One of them was named Sudas. Sudas was a Messiah who called the masses together, and he said, bring your stuff, bring your possessions, we're going to roll, and when we get to the Jordan River, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to separate the waters. It's going to be awesome. And people would gather up around him. There was another one called the Egyptian. He went outside the city of Jerusalem up onto the Mount of Olives, and he gathered a bunch of people together, predominantly poor folks, people who weren't going into the city, and he said, get all your stuff, come together with me, and with one word... I will speak and the walls of the city will come down and we'll all be able to go in. This kind of stuff was all over the place in the first century. False messiahs making big claims. This, I think, was the kind of thing that the Pharisees were most likely talking about when they come to him in that passage we read. They came and they began to argue with Jesus, requiring, demanding a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus, his response is, why are you looking for a sign? You might read into that a little parenthesis, kind of like, how can you not see what's happening right in front of your eyes? But they've become calloused and blind. This is not the first or last time in Jesus' story that these kinds of people come to Jesus, requiring of him, requiring that he function in a certain way, I think like a Midwesterner with agate hunting skills, they had it all figured out. They had it all figured out, and they simply could not see Jesus. They missed his great compassion, his acts of love, his acts of mercy, his acts that were specifically talked about by the prophets. The prophets who spoke of this Messiah talked about a guy who would who would unplug ears, we read that last week, who would, who would bring deaf people to where they could hear. He would have the ability to make the lame walk and the blind see. He would have the power over the demonic realm. Has Jesus not showed power over all of those things thus far? Isn't that what the hubbub is all about? This man who can do things well, this man who can do things unlike anything anybody had ever seen or has seen in the history of humanity. It's just fantastic. And he was doing things just as the prophets had said he would. And here come the the religious know-it-alls and they say, who are you? What the heck are you doing? Who is this punk? What does he think he's doing, this young, zealous guy from Nazareth? Come on. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. We know that. Everybody knows that. This guy just doesn't fit the mold. Where's your sign? Hasn't this kid ever even read the Bible? Good grief. It's quite a juxtaposition of stories by Mark, isn't it? Jesus engages with 4,000 human beings in a wide-scale miracle, doing something nobody's ever done or will do. He's just finished doing this. 
And here come these snippety, petty, prideful know-it-alls. I'm being pretty harsh here, and I don't mean to talk that way about all Pharisees, just this group that Mark is focusing on. I kind of imagine these guys waddling up the trail. I can't believe this guy. It's unbelievable. They come to argue with him. And they say, you don't have power. You know, can you imagine this? Here they are telling Jesus what they want to tell him. There's 4,000 people eating sandwiches on miracle bread. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just amazing. They're like, what's your deal? Show us something cool. You don't have any power. You're stupid. And you're weird. And more than anything, you're bad. Unfortunately, and I, I have to confess this, I suspect many of us would confess this, that we have spent many an hour just begging for God to show himself, to show me some kind of compassion. Concluding that he must not have any real power. I spent a lot of my time in life just saying, well, he must not be that powerful because he certainly hasn't fixed this issue. He hasn't prevented that. He hasn't stopped that. And that's what God, who's divine, does. He prevents what I want him to prevent. And he does what I want him to do. And he's not. So he's either not around, or he's not listening, or he's not powerful. Sometimes I believe that he was bad, or I would think that he was foolish. And if only God could see and understand life through my perspective, and the way that I experience this world in, in this modern Portland, if God could actually know the truth through my eyes, he wouldn't do what he does. So he must not be around. It felt like God wasn't paying attention to what I required of him. Yes, they wanted to behold not a, not a young punk breaking all the rules and giving the dirty and unclean and bad people something very good. That's just whatever. Whatever. Who cares about that? That's not God. No, we want earth-shattering. We want God to show up with big color, big sound, big power. We want something blazing across the horizon. We want that cancer to be totally lifted. And if it's not, where's God? What's he doing? Doesn't he care? Where's his compassion? We want the laws of nature to be totally blasted so that we're driven to our knees in shock. We want the end times to be right now. Everything to be perfect. Everyone to be totally healed. If it's not that, then where is God? Do something, God. Why aren't you doing anything about all of this? Are you even here? But have you noticed that Jesus never at any point grants their request, the people who come to him like this? He never says, all right, fine. I'll just do what you want. He always withdraws from that kind of posture. I think it's to humble them. You come to Jesus arguing and requiring, he withdraws. I think that Jesus knows our hearts. In other stories in the Gospels, people will engage with Jesus and they will say, this guy 
has to be divine because of how deeply he knows me. He knows stuff about me nobody else would ever know. He knows our heart. There's other passages that just simply say it. He knows the heart of man. And he will speak to people in ways that cause them to say, oh my goodness. He is, he is the all-knowing God. And knowing us as he does, he knows that those desires to demand of him and to require from him come from a way that we have learned to see truth. They come from a way that we have learned to prove what's real. They don't come from a place of earnest seeking. Jesus is well aware of the fact that when we foist these kinds of requirements or demands upon him, we're not actually trying to see the hand of God at work. These kinds of requirements come from blindness, deep-seated blindness and inability to see God's activity in this world. The good news is that Jesus was not blind, and he came to give sight and hearing to people like you and me so we could see him and hear him for real. I think Jesus was able to see the work of God permeating throughout all of creation. Pomegranates and dates growing from seeds into lush plants that were fruitful. He was walking down that northern hillside around Galilee and sees a scarlet anemone growing. Olive orchards with white blossoms and the bees that come to pollinate what will become fruits and then seeds and carry on. He sees the work of God there, the cry of a newborn baby, the sacrificial passion of two lovers that transcends animal instinct. If you start to listen to God and pay attention to how he has taught us about ourselves in creation, and you submit yourself to him, and you sit at his feet as a learner or a disciple, the presence of God becomes far less distant and unknowable. You start to see this world through his eyes, and you say, oh my goodness, I have missed it. I've been waiting for a sign, and there's a million signs that I will pass by in between the end of church service now and going home to my house. Those daggers of light piercing the darkness up over the mountains as the dawn breaks. There's a way of seeing God that we often miss in the busyness and in the prove it to me kind of world. Jesus did not think that God needed to break in from the outer beyond. I think he knew that God himself was already present in our world for anybody who could see him. Some want to get eye to eye with Jesus and demand things from him. And others are willing to sit at his feet and learn things from him. And it's those who will begin to see the great compassion of Jesus in their day to day. Every breath, it's your breath in our lungs. It's your breath in our lungs. You're going to breathe about 3,200 gallons of air today alone. That's a lot. 
Every breath you draw in, you're breathing now. Imagine the miracle of what's happening as your brain system measures the CO2 in your blood and tells your lungs to take in another fresh draw. And then the material in your lungs can separate oxygen and CO2 out and fill your bloodstream with what it needs. You're going to breathe 3,200 gallons of air today. That's God's breath in your lungs. The fact that we can blink and our hearts keep beating is a miracle. By being willing to be with Jesus, you learn to see his compassion. And requiring things from Jesus is very different than being with him. If we had created God, or if we had helped God, then God would owe us something, for sure. But God created us, and God helped us. God doesn't owe us anything, and he doesn't owe us compassion. And yet the ones who are with him experience it and see it. And the ones who stand opposed, critiquing and arguing, the ones who come to challenge and say, Jesus, you need to meet my requirements, they never see it. They stay blind. And Mark, the only ones, the only ones who cannot see Jesus, who stay totally blind to it, are the ones who hang out on the sidelines, demanding and requiring that God present himself to them on their terms. And as today's story concludes, we don't see Jesus being mean to them. Instead, he gives them what they truly want. He knows their heart. He's respecting them. He gives them what they want. And it says, then he left them. That's at the heart, isn't it? I come to God and I say, God, here's what I require. That's my way of saying, God, I am God. And when you're willing to submit to me, we can be buddies. And until you are, we can't. And I think God says to you, okay, you can be your own God. Then he left them and he got back into the boat and he went to the other side. The one who requires things from God does not actually want God or the life that he offers at all. He or she just wants him or herself. But whether you went out to seek Jesus or he sought you, that's happening in both parts of the equation, isn't it? Sometimes you have the woman who travels from afar seeking Jesus. Sometimes you have a guy just hanging out and Jesus enters into his life. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, the one who approaches, the one who responds humbly will learn to see the great compassion of our creator in every single breath that you take. You'll learn to see it. You come to be with Jesus, not requiring of him. And it, and it is awesome how you, each day with Jesus, you will see more and more and more of his presence and his compassionate love toward you. I encourage you to stay the course with him.
to be with him in the deepest possible way that you can and to trust from the, from the gospels, from the scriptures, trust that when you're postured that way before him, you will see evermore his compassion, his love, his presence, his guidance in your life. You come to a place where you're done with the, where are you, God? And you come to a place where you recognize he's always Emmanuel with us. Pray with me. Jesus, this world, as you well know, it, it creates these hard hearts in us, this calloused, um, sort of know-it-all approach to life. It almost feels like we have to get to that spot to survive and be called intelligent by our peers. And so we come to your story, we come to the, your word with all of these things that we've experienced and learned, and, and we, we see you doing what you're doing, and still we say, gosh, where are you in our life? I pray that through your spirit you would help us you would help us to see and to hear you for real, not just in the, in the ways that we expect a divine being to work, which is through these, these powerful reworkings of the cosmos or something. Help us to see you in our ordinary, everyday life. Help us to see how many miracles we experience in the course of 10 average minutes. What a precious and infinitely beautiful gift this life is. And I pray, God, that you would help us as a whole community be very, very willing to drop the mindset of meeting with you eye to eye and demanding from you, but instead to sit at your feet and learn from you so that we could see you clearer each day and so that we could help our neighbors do the same. We love you, God. We're thankful for you, Jesus, and we trust you with our entire life. Amen.